but here, on the very rim of known space, justice is a long way away. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Space Game Junkie Podcast. I am always your co-host, Brian. Joining me, as always, is your co-host, Spaz. I'm taking my turn. <laughs> your co-host, Julie. Hello from the great snowy north. Is it snowy again over up there? Oh, yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, also joining us is your co-host, Thorsten. <laughs> Hello from Germany. Your co-host, uh, Jacob. Uh-oh. Sorry, my, uh, I'll get to, I'll get back to you on that later. Carry on. Okay. And your co-host, David. Yeah, hello, hello. And friends, joining us this week, we have a get, guest from, can remind me, where are you calling from? Remind me? Uh, Troy, New York. Okay. Uh, home That's- of uh, Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute. <laughs> Oh, Rensselaer Poly? I don't know. Yep. Um, <laughs> hey, any team, any any university that names their sports team the Engineers. Oh, okay. Wasn't there a movie in the 80s that took place there? Am I remembering yep. of a different? What, what, what movie? Uh, there have been two movies that have been filmed at RPI, uh, and I'm blanking on the names for both of them. But I think uh, I, think I know of one was, of them. One of them was like a sci-fi yeah. kind of experiment gone and that, wrong ladies and gentlemen movie. is tangent number one <laughs> you know what <laughs> okay. so so friends we have a guest calling from uh new york uh ken burnside uh owner and operator of uh ad astra games which is a board game company uh <laughs> do they win much uh uh which is a board game company that makes hyper real i'm gonna are they, would you call them hyper-realistic 3D space combat board games using... And jet combat. Oh, and and, jet uh, combat there is one games. jet combat game. That's right. Yeah, everyone forgets Birds of Prey exists. Uh, no, no. The people who love Birds of Prey know that it exists. The people who don't know, the people who don't know that Birds of Prey exists are going to love it when they find out about it. Apologies. Uh, my I mean, usual... Sorry, God. Yeah, it's okay. My pitch on this is that, I, is that what I really do is I make flight simulators that work on tabletop for people with slow eyesight and bad reflexes. <laughs> well, that's the old pitch. <laughs> that's, a, I mean, that's a terrific pitch. So, uh, so uh, Jacob, this uh, the our, our guest today was your idea, so I'm going to turn it over to you, well, basically. Idea in the sense that I mentioned, I, I mentioned I'm on the Space Games podcast, and Ken, and Ken went over and asked, hey, can I be there? Do you, do you take guests? Well, Ken, you've been on here yeah. before. Do you? Re- uh, it's been a while. Yes, but you were here back in twenty sixteen, last... I think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just before I moved to New York, uh, mostly at the uh, mostly because of James, who doesn't seem to be part of your co-host uh, coterie no, anymore. No, uh, James and Hunter, who used to be our co-host, they left. Uh, they left to do their own thing. Um, ah. Do you remember what that's called, Spaz? Is it something? Otherworlds.gg. Thank you. Otherworlds.gg. That's their thing now. Um, so okay. we so we replaced two co-hosts with four co-hosts, and now we have six co-hosts. Uh, <laughs> but I, I but so they're great, like triples. You 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 leave food around and they multiply. Kind of sort of. People like cats. Like, kind of. Except that no cat in recorded history has ever been fed. Yes, in recorded history. Mm-hmm. You ask them, they'll tell you. Uh, speaking mm-hmm. of, please send our uh, please uh, carry, uh, pass our regards to upper management. 
yes, uh, Ad Astra Games is a, a one is a one monkey supervised by one cat uh, game company. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, let's get let's get on topic. Uh, so, Mister uh, Mister Ken, let's uh, let's start from the beginning, and by the beginning being, um, well. Let's assume that let's assume that the audience know absolutely nothing about who you are and what you do. So, who right. are you and what do you do? <laughs> so, at various points in my time, I have done journalism. Uh, I have done. Uh, I've managed uh, phone bank rooms and worked for political campaigns. Uh, but I started out playing games about hmm, 1981 or thereabouts with Raid on Iran by Steve Jackson Games. Uh, and then got into Car Wars, and then bumped into D&D for a while, and then into Champions, uh, and then into Battletech. Uh, had a friend who also had a first edition Battletech, Battletech box when it was called Battle Droids, but by the time I got into it, it was called Battletech. And he was very careful to never let that box off of his shelf or be touched by anybody with the grubby fingers, because he knew <laughs> it was going to be worth something someday. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Very uh, much. It, first edition Battletech? Yeah, Absolutely. When it was called Battle Droids, absolutely. That was before uh, that. That was before Lucas Arts told them. You know, Lucasfilm told them, "Ahem, really? We, Wait, we have uh, the trademark on yeah. droids, therefore you cannot use they it." Had the, why... They have the trademark on yes. droids. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. that. Jeez. That is exactly why uh, what was originally called Battle Droids had to be changed to BattleTech. Hmm. Uh, so. I stumbled into spaceship gaming, uh, oh, about 1988, just as I was coming out of high school, uh, and found Starfire, which was in its second edition and, with, and was in the process of dying. Uh, then I found Starfleet Battles, which was at the it, which was at the end of Commander's Edition and was in the process of dying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm noticing a pattern here. <laughs> Isn't that kind of? Uh, I, I gotta say, isn't that kind of good though? If it's in the process of dying, that means you can get everything and not worry about playing catch up. Isn't that, in a way, a good thing? Yeah, and then I started, and then I heard that Starfleet Battles was coming out with a new edition finally, uh, because Commander's Edition had its last product come out in '87, uh, and got into playtesting on that, and started working on Starfleet Battles as a playtester, and then writing scenarios for them and writing products for them. Uh, And I did significant amounts of playtesting for Starfleet Battles from about 1991 to roughly 2003. Wow. Uh, And ran Battle Labs and uh, was the executive developer for a product line called the Omega Sector, called the Omega Quadrant or Omega Sector, and then wrote my own product called the Magellanic Clouds. Uh, In uh, in 2005, I became their marketing director. Uh, and uh, basically moved to Amarillo and worked in their worked in their office and in the process of being their marketing director was also the uncredited co-designer of the Federation Commander game, which uh, was a game that was meant to capture the people the large audience of people who used to play Starfleet Battles and stopped when you know it became a fourteen hundred page rule book with nine point text at about twelve hundred words per page. Jesus. <laughs> uh, in the midst of this, about 2001, uh, while I was sorry, in 2000, while I was watching the Super Bowl, uh, I was sitting there mucking around with a spreadsheet uh, as I was watching TV. And, as one does, as one does, and uh, worked <laughs> and independent and, and independently rederived uh, the formula for kinema- for uh, displacement or, uh, under uh, acceleration. D equals one half times a times t squared, and. 
<laughs> then figured out how to make that work as a segmented movement system and uh, said, okay, well, let's see if I can turn this into a Starfleet Battles faction. And the short answer was no, I couldn't. Uh, but when but when I put that together, I went onto a mailing list called SF Consumel uh, and found a whole bunch of nerds who uh, had been playing who had been playing vector movement spaceship combat games for you know twenty or thirty years of various varieties, and it, it was a known thing. We know how vector movement spaceship combat works, and I was saying, but you're not doing it right because you're not factoring in displacement over time. Oh, that's an irrelevant thing. It doesn't matter. And so I put together a a PDF. Uh, that is up on uh, Winchell Chung's website, Atomic Rockets. It was one of the very first things he posted up there that was uh, comparing non-displacement vector movement with vector movement and how the errors accumulate over you know, over about two or three turns. Um, so Chad is asking, is this entire project started as a side effect of, soup, of the Super Bowl being boring? <laughs> uh, no, actually, that was not one of the boring Super Bowls. Uh, ah. <laughs> that was uh, that that was the one that the LA that was the first one that the uh, that the Rams won against the uh, against the Tennessee Titans. The one that was basically uh, the one where they stopped the Titans about four feet short of a of a game winning touchdown in the last second. <laughs> right, I'm sure I would understand any of that if I watched the Super Bowl ever. Uh, carrying on, <laughs> <laughs> and then you velcro your lemons to the cat. Understood. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so at that time, the game was basically two-dimensional. Uh, but I was talking on the SF Consumel list and had figured out a better way of doing vector movement than you know had been the standard in the industry for the standard of the game is in the games gaming field for going on thirty years. Uh, the very first vector movement game was Triplanetary, uh, which came out in 1975 and has been recently reprinted by uh, Steve Jackson Games. Great uh, game, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and it is a great game. Um, so after fixing that, I started working on a project called Delta V, which got published in 2001. And in the process of doing that, a friend of mine that I made on the SF Continental mailing list said, hey, what would, what would you say if I told you that I know a group of guys who are putting together an air combat game and they've managed to make 3D actually work? Bold play. Said, well, I, I said, bold claim, Let, I'll, I'll, I'll go take a look at it. And I got onto the uh, air battle mailing list uh, and got to see the massive churn of the rule set that eventually became uh, the, the, the massive churn of, of the rule set that eventually became Birds of Prey uh, in 2000 and 2001 to 2002 uh, and got to see several iterations of their play called the pitch heading attitude display. Uh, and I looked at the pitch heading attitude display and said, hmm, I see why they're doing it that way. I'm not sure that the extra fiddliness of what they're doing is worth the trouble. Uh, what happens if we just rotate this this outer degree, this this outer ring, the, the zero degree ring, back so that it lines up appropriately so you can actually face a hex side and a hex corner? Um, and that became the fad. That, that, that was the fad, and that became the AVID, or Attitude Vector Information Display. So the uh, first one was that. just a fad, but then you improved it. Uh, indeed. Um, the Birds of Prey still uses the fad, uh, and both of the spaceship games use uh, the AVID. And after putting that together, um, and after bouncing off of their tutorial for the fad a couple of times, and then finally figuring out what it was, why it worked, and the things that I needed to learn in the appropriate space of time to make sure that it, I understood it, uh, I started writing the tutorial for it uh, for for Delta V. It was a bad tutorial, but I learned a lot from doing it. 
Delta V came out of 2001. Uh, in 2002, uh, after having sold out of the original of the original 300 copies of Delta V, I uh, put together uh, what became Attack Factor, which came out of 2004. And in the midst of that, I also came up with tilt blocks and stacking tiles and making your counters for your ships, little cardboard fold-ups uh, with you know, basically artwork on six on six sides of a cardboard box. Uh, or box miniatures, as I like to call them, or hollow cubes, because they're hollow and they're cubes, or cuboids at the very least. And with tilt blocks and the hollow cubes, what turned the... That, that was basically the second half of the problem for getting 3D to work right. Because the problem with 3D on tabletop games is you're always having to ask, so what is your pitch and roll again across the table as you're looking at the flat <laughs> counter? <laughs> uh, What's your altitude again? As you're, you know, looking at the flat counter, uh, and with tilt blocks, stacking tiles, and, uh, and and box miniatures, that was all on the table where it needed to be, where everybody could see it. Uh, the other thing that I introduced them to was, hey, if you laminate your play aid cards, you can use dry erase markers on them, uh, and uh, this way you don't have to actually use little flat counters for the three symbols that you're using on the fad to keep track of things so that the next time somebody opens a door, nobody has to reset their air, their aircraft orientation state, uh, which is why all of the games that I publish have laminated cards in them because that is such a great usability aid. So since then, I've won an Origins Award. I've uh, contributed to several other spaceship combat games because honestly, my pitch is, so long as we're all blowing up spaceships, everybody wins. Respectable. <laughs> Alongside, if it's not on a schedule, it doesn't exist, and always we always round towards explosions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the point of any good space combat game, really. Yep, it is also <laughs> it is also a mathematical principle in Squadron Strike. But so so far, we've uh, established uh, the origin story up to and including Birds of Prey. Uh, but how did the whole... Uh, so, from what I recall, Attack Vector Tactical was the first game to come out. And... Uh, yep. How exactly did it come about, so to speak? Uh, what... what um, I, I do... I'm kind of imagining it, it was kind of a convergence of all the ideas from the previous games. But how to did some the, extent, yes. the idea of it come about? Uh, so, having had an argument with an entire mailing list about how you're doing vector movement wrong... Uh, and, you know, having come away convinced that, yes, they were doing vector movement wrong, I decided to make a game where the vector movement was done right. And the key to that was a play that's on the attack vector uh, play aid card, which is a thrust chart, which shows both uh, acceleration over time uh, and displacement over time as two overlapping variables on a color-coded table. And then, in and then to make it work for 3D, I had to make that chart uh, handle both flying level with a map and flying at, at 30 degree, 60 degree, 90 degree pitch angles with a map. Uh, and that and that gave me the space to go and put the little dots in between the half columns for how uh, you track your fuel. So this is literally a card that is the size of an American business card, a chart the size of an American business chart uh, card that tracks five different variables for physics all at once uh, and does so in a nice, clean, pretty way. And with that, I had the game engine for attack vector. Uh, after that, it was just a matter of building ships and then doing a whole bunch of research on how things take damage in space uh, to make sure that the you know, to make sure the damage model was actually made for an interesting and fun game. Because 
there are lots of situations where a real-world combat situation does not actually make for a fun game. For example, modern naval combat on the surface, modern naval surface combat, you don't have any ability to maneuver after the weapons have been fired, uh, and the weapons are in the range of one to two hits will take out any ship. Yeah, you you apply every conceivable piece of ordnance you have towards the enemy and pray that your defenses hold out. <laughs> yeah, and they won't. <laughs> they won't. Eventually, yes. something will get through. Right. Uh, so, in, in Attack Vector, one of the things that I tried very hard to do was tune it so that the beam weapon outputs wouldn't render kinetic weapons obsolete, and that the kinetic weapon damage potential wasn't so high that you know everybody would just flew kinetic weapons. Uh, we also had I also had a number of collaborators on the project, and uh, one of them by the name of uh, Eric Finley came up with the Shellstar solution for dealing with incoming projectiles, mm-hmm. and the Shellstar solution. Uh, the Shellstar solution is a set of procedures that you follow in attack vector when you launch a kinetic when you launch a kinetic weapon, and it is a nine-step procedure that involves looking things up on tables and doing very simple arithmetic, which causes people who are mathphobics to go twitch, twitch, ew. Uh, but what it does is over those nine steps, it walks you through not one, not two, but three Newtonian reference frame shifts, and you fill out a card and hand it to your opponent, and now all of those incoming projectiles are his problem to deal with. They're not tracked on the map, you don't have to move them around, he knows when they're going to arrive, he knows what he has to do to avoid them, and then he's sitting there going, crap. (laughs) Which is is what fundamentally the most most fun parts of war games. It is looking at at a problem and figuring out, right, how do I deal with this? Uh So, like, as a minor sort of, not necessarily a tangent, just bring this up, it seems like the primary focus of Ad Astra is to essentially make games that are complex, but throw enough play aids and do enough of the math and the big number calculations for you that you don't have to bother with uh, the actual mathematics. You have to learn how to play the game. Right. The, the pitch that I like to say on that one, uh, in addition to the, you know, uh, flight simulation oh, yeah, people with slow eyesight and bad reflexes is that we do the scary math so you can blow things up. Uh, one of the pieces of scary math that we have in there, uh, if you take a look at an attack vector SSD, in the lower left-hand corner, there's a series of squares and circles. Uh, well, and what I've that is, is a f- I, I have never seen one, so... Uh... Yeah, well, I will uh, throw something up here in the uh, chat for a moment, but Give me a moment while I uh, chatter and do it the same thing. There is a set of uh, s- circles and squares that you that are there that are tracking your fuel. Each column of uh, fuel is one whole space of fuel. When you take damage to a fuel tank, you mark off an entire column. When you burn fuel, you spend it from left to right. As you burn fuel from left to right, uh, the, cer- the uh, units change shape from circles to squares. Uh, as you, turn, as you uh, change shape from circles to squares, you end up in, it, what, what happens is that that is tracking how much your ship's mass has decreased over the course of uh, applying thrust. And every time you change shape from circles to squares and back to circles again, you end up in a situation where, oh, hey, uh, that's, uh, uh, let's go find an SSD that's just by itself so you guys can take a look at it. That'll do. Uh, there, I just sent this up in the uh, chat for you to take a look at, Jacob. Uh, Thank you. It's a PDF, unfortunately. Um, so 
each time that you change from circles to squares, your ship's mass is decreased enough that your maximum thrust is increased. Uh, so as you're burning fuel, your ship gets a little bit uh, livelier in terms of its thrust. If you take a look at the track that's down there, you'll notice that some of those fuel tanks, some of those fuel columns have extra units of fuel on them, and they're towards the right-hand edge of the set. That's because as you're burning fuel, your ship is getting lighter, and as you're getting lighter, it takes minutely less amounts of fuel to get the same amount of thrust. Mm-hmm. So we do the scary math so you can blow things up because nobody really wants to do calculus at the table. Correct. Uh, more importantly, no one has the time to do calculus at a table. <laughs> Even people that like want to do calculus will uh, will will run to the issue of it just taking forever. And, and you don't want to have people taking 45 minutes to take one turn. Yes. No. Uh, well, uh, that does actually happen in Attack Factor because a turn is made up of eight segments. But, you know, I, I joke on my server that uh, we're going to have uh, the Attack Factor real-time challenge where everybody has to play Attack Factor at 16 seconds per segment. Um, if I may at this point... I'm starting to feel like I did back in grad school in advanced statistics when the instructor explained how to do linear regression by hand. Uh, And I just wondered if, you know, it's like, okay, for those of us to whom board games within the last decade were usually things like chess, the occasional uh, video game, how would I, as a neophyte to board games, can it get involved in all this without looking at all that's going on and saying, oh, my God, I'm lost. Uh, yes. I think I'm going back to, to something simple. So, first of all, I acknowledge that, I, that what I'm doing is a niche product. I would love... Uh, I, there, there's a timeline where... Uh, the kids that went from Pokemon to Yu-Gi-Oh! didn't go to Magic the Gathering, they went to Attack Factor. And in that timeline, we have a space program that's already using nuclear rockets. I know well, this. Yes. I, I just, I treat it as a, I, I treat it as an article of faith. Um, but in Attack Factor, there, the first chapter of the rulebook is a literal fly-through tutorial. And if you actually set up the map and set up the chocolates and set up the box miniatures uh, and go through and shoot the chocolates for the three turns of program scripted learning, you will learn everything in the game that is not kinetic weapons uh, in those three turns. And you'll see how all the pieces and parts fit together. The fact that I do all the math and you could see the math, but the math is behind a six foot thick quartz wall. So it can't bite your fingers. Um, Not for lack of trying, though. Not for lack of trying. And the uh, and, and the way I describe it is that when I see reviews of Attack Vector that say, started reading the tutorial, writing this from hospital, was lucky my wife found me first, brains were leaking out ears, if the dog had found me, I'd be dead now. <laughs> that's, uh, that sounds, the, the level of accuracy you keep repeating that example makes me think that was something someone wrote. I expect that to be something that has been Uh, repeated verbatim. (laughs) So that's somebody who read the tutorial and didn't set up the math and play through it. Somebody who played the tutorial as it's intended to be played gives me reviews that say, I don't believe it. It's, It's like a choir of angels started singing behind me and gave me 15 more IQ points. There's no possible way this should work. It shouldn't work at all. 
but it does. It just does. It's a miracle. You should try this. You should really, guys, guys. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, that is spot on how I felt after my first match of squad on strike. <laughs> so I was able to put the PDF you put in the chat up on the screen, so okay. uh, people can see it. Yeah. Uh, so the thing that we were looking at is the bottom left, which is the actual fuel display. But everything else, it looks scary, but to a to a slightly trained eye, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, <sighs> I say slightly trained because I haven't played AVT, so uh, but mm-hmm. it's not necessary for uh, for our current topic. So. Yep. Your next question. Uh, well, one thing I wanted to also uh, add on to add on to Julie's uh, whole thing. If you want, um, while AVT is complex, there is uh, the less complex ver- uh, the less complex game from Ad Astra that was made se- that was made second, and uh, that's Squadron Strike. Which uh, w- would you like to would you like to introduce it, or at least the concept behind it? Sure. Uh, so Attack Vector. When I built it, uh, was meant to be the best physics model of space combat that we could make at the time, and to be honest, it is still a better physics model of space combat than what you can actually see in an awful lot of video games. Uh, that being said, the thing that you couldn't do in it is there's no way in hell I was going to let people try to design ships in Attack Vector, because the spreadsheet on there is best described as a visual basic application that is gnawing its way out of the carcass of a spreadsheet, uh, much like a wasp larva gnaws its way out of, gnaws its way out of the carcass of a tarantula. Uh, and it had magic numbers galore, and it would be very, very easy to make the best possible ship with these tech assumptions, at which point all of the other ships become obsolete, and then it stops being interesting to play. Hello, so, Battletech Technical Manual. What are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh and this is one of the problems that happened with Battletech. Uh, their design engine was such that once you started making your own mechs, you could just clean the floor out of anything that was a book mech at the time. Uh, and so with Attack Factor, I don't release the uh, the ship design engine because, well, if people don't want to do calculus at the game table, fewer of probably more of them will, are willing to try doing calculus for designing a ship. But no, 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 no. Um, so I decided that I needed to make a game that had a ship design engine. And this was actually a, a slow, agonizing decision for me. Uh, because a friend of mine named Dan Cast publishes a game called Starmata, which has an excellent ship design system. Uh, Starmata has a much better balanced ship design system than Squadron Strike does, in that it is almost impossible to make a ship in Starmata that doesn't work. Where it's very easy to make one in Squadron Strike that doesn't work. Uh, also, but one of the things that turned it over was that uh, on a website called the Miniatures page, which is now uh, still up, but kind of decimal and dusty at the point at, at this point, uh, one of Dan's most rabid customers would jump into every thread about space combat games and talk about how Starmada did that thing and did it better. And then he went and did this in Attack Vector about how uh, Starmada did three-dimensional movement better. And then I got miffed. <laughs> You took offense. Mildly. Uh, so I decided I was going to go and learn the lessons from Starmata and make a three-dimensional spaceship combat game that had the same plot, move, shoot, sequence of play and had a player-accessible ship design system. And uh, this came out 
after I did Attack Vector and after I did Saganami Island Tactical Simulator First Edition, which was a reskinning of Attack Vector with David Weber's Honor Harrington Universe stuff in it. I still apologize for a, uh, for, for Sit's First Edition because Sit's First Edition paid too much attention to David's numbers and not enough to the field in the books. And as a result, it was tedious to play. Not just boring, but tedious to play. <laughs> Uh, so second edition uh, sits was effectively a first run at doing uh, the movement engine for what became Squadron Strike. Uh, and second edition for sits sold so much better than first edition. It was wonderful. Uh, then Squadron Strike came out in 2008. Uh, and I have been supporting it more or less ever since. The trick with Squadron Strike is that Squadron Strike isn't just tied to Newtonian physics as we know it. Uh, it has movement modes. The movement modes are the rules regulating how ships move, and they are named after the number of Newton's laws being obeyed. Mode zero, what are physics laws? When you turn off your engine, your ship grinds to a halt, just like an ox cart. It's Aristotelian movement. In mode one, your ship accumulates speed from turn to turn to turn, but only in the direction the front of the ship is facing in. So it plays a little bit like an air combat game, only there's no gravity and there are and the geometry is a little weird and different. Uh, I call that mode one movement. It obeys one of Newton's laws. And it is actually a pretty good model for how most cinematic movement is shown on a on both Star Wars and Star Trek. Whenever you see the Enterprise or, uh, or the Millennium Falcon turning and, you know, turning and swerving, that's mode one movement. Uh, mode two movement is, is obeying two of Newton's laws because you've got uh, thrust that accumulates from turn to turn and your vectors are completely independent of the facing of your ship, meaning that you have to swivel around 180 degrees and apply thrust in the opposite direction to slow down. Uh, and recently we've added fuel tracking to, uh, uh, to mode two movement and can actually generate the notes on, hi, if you burned this much thrust, if you burned this much of your fuel, your thrust increases by this amount at this level uh, as notes for... Uh, for squadron strike, but we don't actually use that often. Uh, the fuel tracking is usually enough complexity for what most people want to do. One of the things that I've been doing with squadron strike is I've started out with, uh, you know, I started out by converting Starfleet battleships because I knew them pretty well uh, and use that as my, if it doesn't do this, it needs to uh, way of adding additional features. And then I started doing some Star Wars ships from that. Uh, one of the earliest play tests had the uh, new Battlestar Galactica going up against an Imperial Star Destroyer. Imagine it didn't go great. Oh, it went amuse it went hilariously. In particular, because the 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 the, uh, the two players who were flying the Star Destroyer and its fighter wings, and the two players flying the uh, the Galactica and its fighter wings, were both told the move the rules for their movement mode, but not the other players. Ah. <laughs> Wait, what? I don't understand. Exactly. Wait, I don't understand. They can have multi different movement modes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It what? On in, in in the same on the same map in the same game. Uh, and that. Uh, that Hold on, we're not talking about. Let's give you an oh, idea, oh. Brian. Think of it this way. Think uh, if you're playing Rebel Galaxy Outlaw. That's that's uh, that's mode one. Okay. Now, now the other player is using Battlestar Galactica Vipers. They're able to flip around. And still fly, and this is with the inertial dampeners off, of course. And they're able to fight you that way. Uh, that yeah, mode yeah. two. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, uh, clarifying questions, Brian. Clarifying questions. <laughs> Wait, how, how does how does that how does that work on the same map? 
like how did how, how pretty well actually uh one side can do maneuvers that the other side can't and the other side can do maneuvers that the first side can't and if you know about them ahead of time you can plan for it if you don't know about it uh uh you only have to worry about what you're doing and wait you did what <laughs> she's always fun uh and I did that as a convention game, and people and the players were going, "Okay, okay, wait, what do you mean the Star Destroyer just changed its direction to travel by ninety degrees <laughs> without swiveling around at one hundred eighty degrees to accelerate? What do you mean those fighters are flying backwards? They can't do that. <laughs> Why are those vipers flying backwards? That's not. Oh wait, why is Ken smiling? <laughs> <laughs> why is Ken smiling? Is a very common question uh, posed during. <laughs> doing uh, his games um, mm-hmm. the answer is usually because things are about to get very interesting so I can who- think of one older game that used a similar system to this go ahead full thrust uh, the, well that's not the one I'm thinking of though I'm thinking okay. of The Last Starfighter uh, published mm-hmm. by FASA co-designed by Jordan Weissman of Battletech fame uh, mm-hmm. the the gun stars could actually use uh, a Newtonian movement and the Armada fighters played by the other player or one of the other players, because you could actually play it with more than two, mm-hmm. uh, each controlling a different squadron or a different gun star, they were limited in the maneuvers that they could use. Yeah. Uh, Very similar concept. Also, that, yeah. Uh, so we can, have, yeah, go ahead, Brian. So who won? With the with the battle star and the star destroyer, who won? The uh, the star destroyer player, uh, the star destroyer player managed to outmaneuver the the uh, uh, the colonial fighters, and the Galactica was not able to outmaneuver the Tie fighters. The Galactica's armor worked pretty well against the Tie fighters' blasters, but enough hits eventually whittled it down. Uh, it turned into basically a one pass fight, uh, where the star destroyer quickly realized that. Uh, they would be able to keep the range open as long as they wanted to, uh, and let the fighters and, and that their fighters were not going to be avoided by the uh, by the by the battle star. Uh, and this was kind of the expected outcome because these were two people who had never played the game before, or rather, four people who never played the game before, and each of them got a separate handout for you know how your how your units move. Wait, you, you, you threw people who had never played the game before into this. I did. They had a blast. Uh, even the battle, even the Battlestar player had a blast uh, because uh, it was about turn three when the Battlestar player went. Wait a minute! What do you mean he just did that? Is that allowed? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Yes, yes, it is." And then, uh, uh, and then the uh, Colonial Viper started to sell- started doing a deceleration burn to get into the uh, rear facing of the Imperial Star Destroyer. And we're flying backwards and shooting forwards, and and the Imperial Star Destroyer saying, "Wait, that's not allowed!" Oh, <laughs> curses! <laughs> this is a lot, for everyone. This is a lot for me. This is a lot for me to take in. For you, Brian. It's a lot for uh, me to take at, in. I'm, I'm <laughs> at conventions like this. Uh, people will come in and see these games being displayed before they bought them. So. Mm-hmm. You're actually oh. getting a chance to play test a game, not just play test, but to actually give the game a try or join a tournament. Yeah, before you buy it, exactly. Try you before get to you see buy. an actual an actual demo 
And oh. I've been in a few myself. So that's how this works. It's not just that they're being thrown into it because, hey, you, hey, you, oh. you try this game. It's they sign up to do these things. Okay. So yes. I, I, I've been to one wargaming convention and there were a lot of these tables around. And so th- these are, mm-hmm. I thought these were all people who knew what they were, do- knew what they were doing, but it sounds like these are not more, necessarily. These are more, a lot uh, of these it, are also demonstrations it, to, it's about two thirds people who know what they're doing and are getting to play and they're getting to play the game that they really love, but only get to play it at conventions because it takes a lot of space. Uh, and about one third is, hey, try my new game. Hey, want to try this out? Hey, I have a situation that I, I have uh, this ship and this ship. What? Who do you think would win between a battle star and imperial star destroyer? Would you like to find out? And that's how Squadron Strike was put together. <laughs> Uh, since then, I've done a lot of other demos and a lot of other, uh, and, and have a lot of different demo scenarios. I've taken to doing uh, smaller demo demos with smaller ships that are easier and faster to kill, uh, so that the demos take less time, uh, and so that there are fewer things to learn as you go through them. Uh, an example would be Romance of the Seven Realms, which is totally not Kroger brand X Wings versus Great Value brand TIE Fighters. Definitely <laughs> not. Uh... Wait, wait, what? <laughs> oh, hold on let, let me let me just post the image let me just post the image um instant yeah. chat mm-hmm. so it's is, the wallpaper <laughs> so the, oh what the what <laughs> uh, uh romance of the seven realms mm-hmm. uh, uh, okay and, w- and what is that exactly? I'm I'm losing track of everything here. What is it? Is a setting for Squadron Strike it's, because Squadron oh, Strike has settings. Oh, okay. Besides so, the ones you can make yourself, it has settings you can just start with. Yes. Okay. And in fact, a lot of my business model with Squadron Strike is put together different settings, and uh, the ones that sell well do follow on products for them, and eventually get enough products out there that oh, hey, I I'm, I'm actually earning a living here. Uh, Yes. From what Attack, I the one... Okay, go ahead. Attack Vector is very niche. Squadron Strike is aimed very firmly at the people who play Full Thrust or Starmata. Uh, it's more complex than either of those or can be. Uh, but Romance of the Seven Realms is set to be about as simple a product as you can make in Squadron Strike. And I have taught people who play Fantasy Flight X-Wings how to play R7R ships by saying, Hi, it looks a little different, but this is your X-Wing. It looks a little different, but these are my TIE Fighters. We're doing plot movement, just like you did in X-Wing. We're moving our ships according to our plot. Uh, we are uh, figuring out what we're shooting. We're rolling dice. We're doing damage to one another's ships. The ships will have a much more detailed damage model than uh, what you're used to, but it'll come really quick to you. And uh, at the end of it, oh, hey, you're in an X-Wing. You have an R2 unit. You can tell them to go fix things. I wish I could do that. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the products here under Squadron Strike on your website. And I noticed mm-hmm. there's a British fleet and a Russian fleet and a, a Japanese fleet. Is that one of the? Is that for one of the settings you have? That is from the diaspora setting, which is in the process of being rewritten. It was the setting in the first edition Squadron Strike box set, and the first edition setting wasn't great. We've got a better one in the pro- we've got a better one in the process where the person who was designing the ships and the person who were was designing the setting uh, collaborated a little bit more closely. Might be the best way to describe it. Oh, there's a couple others down here. Exiles, Stars, and uh, that's the, that's the one Cra- that I'm currently doing. Newton's Cradle. Yep. Yeah, Newton's Cradle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So there's what it looks like there's three settings you can that that are already pre-populated. Uh, there, uh, the ones that are currently printed and shipping are the one that's in the box set. That's, uh, that's the Empire Directorate War. Uh, Traveler, which has an alternate box set, which has the same content in it. Uh, and Romance of the Seven Realms for right now. Very shortly here, I'm going to have Exile Stars and Newton's Cradle, and Newton's Cradle done. Uh, Exile Stars is built on the premise of, what if Star Trek were done intelligently? <laughs> hey. Uh, <laughs> okay. Please, please elaborate. Um, as a as a massive Trekkie, please elaborate on that. <laughs> so I love Star Trek. Uh, before I could see, uh, because I was born with congenital cataracts, uh, oh. I would sit on yeah, I would sit on the couch with my dad as Star Trek reruns played. Uh, because we lived in Fairbanks, Alaska, and there are only two uh, television stations, and one of them managed to get a complete set of all of the Star Trek episodes. Uh, from the 1960s, and would play them at 7 o'clock at night, every single night. <laughs> so, I had I had Star Trek scripts memorized from sitting on the couch with my dad at the age of four. Uh, before I could see. So, I absolutely love Star Trek. That being said, Star Trek has some continuity issues, oh. and it has some fridge logic. Yeah, it's it steps on itself. Let, let's be fair. It, it's 55 years. It's very, 60 it's very years inconsistent. Of, That's yeah. the one universal issue that has been there since basically day one but of just, Star Trek. But just basically it, any big universe like that will step on itself. Runs into that sort of, yeah. yeah. So, would I say, what would, we, what would it be like if Star Trek were done uh, intelligently? That's not meant to diss Star Trek. Mm. Uh, because, quite honestly, Star Trek Strange New Worlds is aimed so so square in on me as a demographic that I'm half that, that I'm halfway expecting that if I showed up in the writer's room, there would be uh, a picture, there'd be a blown up three by four, you know, three foot by four foot picture of that awful photo of me in my Google profile with <laughs> candles in front of it as a shrine. Uh, that's uh, so good. It's so uh, good. It really is. Uh, that, that, epi- uh, that episode where they were hiding in the gas giant from the Gorn. Mm-hmm. Just one of the best Star mm-hmm. Trek episodes of the last few decades, I think. Yeah. So I want you to. So anyway. Exile Stars is inspired by Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, in Exile Stars, the human faction uh, is called the Interstellar League, and uh, they have stumbled. They are Af- they're actually refugees. They have been running for twenty two years. Uh, we don't actually say what they're running from, although I know, and anybody who and anybody who knows science fiction tropes can guess very easily. Uh, but they stumbled across the fringe of a multi-stellar inter- of a multi-stellar interstellar organ- uh, government, for lack of a better term, uh, called the Rulamani Banks. And the Rulamani Banks are run by the Rulamani, who are an obligate, who are a species of obligate carnivores that are vaguely avian-like, who developed banking before they developed agriculture. Because banking, in the terms of being hunter-gatherer societies, is keeping track of favors. I fed you the last time I brought the meat in. You owe me a favor now. And that became the basis of their culture. Uh, The Rulamani are also very picky about what planets they consider comfortable enough to live off of, more so than humans are. Uh, And and they basically said, okay, we will lease you this stretch of worlds over yonder, farther spinward, uh, and we'll trade with you. Because you obviously have things that uh, we don't have, we are really impressed with your. Ma- we're really impressed with your 3D printing technology. Really, really impressed with it. 
Well, the 3D printing technology is built off of uh, what Star Trek would call transporters. And it turns out that the League's heavy weapons are, in fact, transporters. They beam chunks of the enemy ship out of the ship and, you know, disperse it as, you know, uh, as loose atoms sorted by atomic mass, uh, about 3,000 about 3, kilometers that away. Delightful. Uh, the, yes. Uh, their uh, phaser analog is called an anti-proton auger. Uh, and uh, like the phasers in Star Trek, it is actually the one with the overload function. Uh, Starfleet Battles got that wrong. Uh, and it turns out that being least these worlds on the far frontier wasn't entirely an altruistic thing by the Rulamani, because the, a little farther to Spinward is a group of people that uh, are a little bit more aggressive and uh, more, territorially more territorially acquisitive. And so uh, the Rulamani put the humans as a buffer state between them and the Carthian domains. Ah, I see. So it's a bit similar to um, Nexus the Jupiter incident, the storyline in there. A little bit, a little bit hither and there. Uh, it borrows from a few other things as well. Uh, the goal with this is to make a Star Trek that does not have the human faction being the dominant, being the dominant culture that everybody uh, aspires to. Although this is still, an, this is still an aspirational society. This is still a Star Trek, a Star Trek style human post scarcity society, or very nearly post scarcity. Uh, when you have the ability to transport things and you have the ability to three to three D and use those transporters to mine minerals and things like that. And you have the ability to reassemble things. Well, you have the ability to basically make anything you can imagine. <laughs> so it quickly becomes a post-scarcity economy once they're no longer terrified refugees. Now on the exact opposite end of the spectrum there, uh, Newton's Cradle. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which I actually had the pleasure of playing. My seven was the first uh, system I've played for Spawn and Strike. Mm-hmm. It's... So... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you first. Well, fair enough. Well, if I were to introduce it, it simply puts uh, the exact opposite because it is supposed to be a near-future, uh, near-future near hard sci-fi uh, setting inspired... Well, not necessarily inspired, resembling uh, sh shows like The Expanse. But uh, definitely uh, resonant with the expanse. Resonant with the expanse, not necessarily inspired. Uh, yeah. Where uh, things are going very, very fun, very fine. Earth has colonized a bunch of other planets in the solar system. Then those planets decided to uh, decided to engage in politics, and now there's a, and now there's a massive um, massive proxy war happening in the uh, moons of Titan. Sorry, in the moons moons of Saturn. Uh, uh, moons of Jupiter, actually. Moons of Jupiter, so not, not, sorry, not Saturn, yep. where you have both the uh, Martians and the Lunars uh, throwing ships at the lo at local forces to then throw the ships at each other. Mm -hmm. uh, the basic pitch on the, the basic pitch on on this setting is that there's uh, is that one of the three Martian governments tried to uh, pull a bluff on uh, on on the governments of Earth. The bluff got called, and it turned out that a rubble pile crashing through all of the orbital infrastructure makes orbits uh, really hard to get to. It's called the Kessler Cascade. Uh, without regular trade to and from, without regular trade from Earth, Luna was past its carrying capacity uh, and uh, set up a massive migration to parts farther out system. And in the process, you know, decided to kick uh, the Tharsis Combine in the in the nuts. <laughs> uh, the Tharsis Combine uh, being Mars, I presume. 
being one of the Martian governments. Ah. Uh, the other two Martian governments are in the situation of, we can't really let you pick on the Tharsis Combine, even though we think they're assholes too. <laughs> and thus we have, and thus we have politics driving the uh, scenarios. One of the things that's in this product is that on the inside front cover, there's a um, uh, there's a map of the Jovian moons uh, that is a Delta V map, and you can use that map as an operational map for getting around the solar for getting around the Jovian moons. And the hexes have uh, fuel costs to enter them, and some of the hexes are adjacent to one another based off of uh, based off of the periods of time, because the first three Jovian moon, the first three Galilean moons, uh, are all on resonances with one another. And uh, the last one, Callisto, is almost on resonance with the with the other two, with the other three. Uh, so it actually is playing in orbital mechanics, and you're burning the fuel and to to get to these spots. And when you get to these spots, you start regret and have a fight. You start regretting all that fuel you spent to get there because you have other uses for it. And uh, and it's one of the very best integrated uh, operational to tactical games I've ever seen. Yes, uh, to put it simply, there is a there is actually a competent. Competent uh, for my for my of other people was strategic layer to uh, mm-hmm. Newton's cradle specifically on top of the usual you know tactical shooty shooty parts of uh, uh, squadron strike proper. There is I believe it, I believe it was released as a separate game or at least like exists nope, as a separate. Game. It, it will be it will be included as part of the Newton's cradle product. The map ah. is printed on the inside cover. We've got uh, we, we've got some uh, materials that go in with it uh, and uh, a separate little rule book for it. Uh, it has been put together as a tabletop uh, simulator module by uh, Tao Deichmann, the designer of it. Uh, and if you guys like having me on, uh, perhaps uh, next time around, well, after I get Newton's Cradle ready to launch, uh, you can have Tao Deichmann and I on uh, as a joint interview sometime. When is that happening? Just a curious, just out of curiosity. I'll let you know. I'll let you know two weeks before it does, or three weeks before it does. But Got it's it. one of those. I have so many things that I'm juggling that I have to finish a couple of these things and ship out the newest product before I can finish off the other ones. So uh, it's the problem uh, of being a one person supervised by one cat game company. Yes. Uh, the uh, your website your website claims uh, claims Newton's Cradle. It was supposed to be out this last summer. It was not. Maybe maybe change <laughs> oh. maybe change the word expected to hoped. Hoped to yeah, possibly. <laughs> oh, oh, that was uh, June of last year. Oh shit! Yes, excuse my language. Oh, yes, no. it was supposed to. It was supposed to be out last summer. Oh, uh, okay. it, it, I see. I, I have the SSD book done. Uh, I have all of the rules for Wang Jian's War uh, done, and need to do layout on them. I have to finish the layout for Exile Stars, uh, which is the big, which is the current big project. Uh, in addition to shipping out Top Gun. Uh, but it's going to be Exile Stars, then Newton's Cradle, then uh, uh, then then doing the second edition or you know, the, the second printing slash second edition of <clears throat> Romance of the Seven Realms. So, if if I may, uh, mm-hmm. uh, now normally I only do complex math when I get paid to do it. And my job sometimes involves math that makes CPAs say, "Huh," uh, but it, I'm kind of a dyed in the wall. Uh, video game player and uh, mm-hmm. I haven't played board games since college and so my 
See, my thing is, I understand you say you have a niche market, and uh, and I don't. Perhaps you never intend on expanding past it. But just if when I think back in my marketing days, is my big question then becomes: Is if you ever wanted to attract someone like me, whose big thing has only become video games, what would you say to someone to try and say? Look, come play my product. Come do this. Here's why would, it's better. I would ask three questions of you. And if I may, I'll ask them now. Go ahead. What kind of pleasure do you get out of playing video games? Oh, pure escapism. Pure escapism okay. to get me away from the stress of the job. All right. So you play video games to have some control over a movie that is being played out where you have some control, where you have some agency over the actors. Uh, you don't play video games for the uh, almost got it, almost got it, damn, got to do it again. Almost got it, almost got it, damn, got to do it again. Nope, not kind at all. Thrill, kind of thrill. Pure escapism. Right. So in the miniatures game market, there are two kind. There are two demographics. Uh, one demographic wants to wants to shove their miniatures around, roll some dice, and uh, visualize the movie uh, that their miniatures are acting out, uh, and maybe drink some beer and smack talk with their buddies. Uh, that market is already pretty well saturated in the spaceship game sense with both Full Thrust, X-Wing, and, uh, well, basically with X-Wing, Full Thrust, and Starmada. Uh, and I would just direct you towards one of those other games that are produced by friends of mine. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to actually be Captain Kirk sitting in the chair of the Enterprise and worrying and knowing exactly what the capabilities of your ship are, and you want to win, not because of die rolls, but because you were just a little bit more cunning at figuring out how to get that angle and that shot in than your opponent was, that's where you come into my games, because you won't get that experience with theirs. Uh, and what variety of Captain Kirk do you want to be? Do you want to be uh, James Holden flying the Rossinanti? Uh, for that, you probably actually want to play uh, Newton's Cradle for uh, you want to play Newton's Cradle for one end of that for one end of that spectrum, or Attack Factor Tactical for the other. Um, I have thought about what I could do to make a uh, to make a game that is a large number of units roll your dice and uh, and see the and see the metal movie metal movie play out and if those roll, if those ever turn into something that i think is going to be fun and viable i will publish it uh, but that is a different set of game design skills than the one that i currently am, than the one that i currently use uh, as to how I would get you to sit down and play my game, assuming you wandered by at a convention, the standard question would be, hi, would you like to blow up some chocolates? You kill it, you eat it. <laughs> what? Hi, yeah. would you like to blow up some chocolates? If you kill it, you eat it. Just like the movie, you keep what you kill. Mm -hmm. And I find that if I say, hi, would you like to blow up some chocolates? You kill it, you eat it. Somebody will say, what? And if they say, what? I have them. They will sit down for that demo. <laughs> and I can do a squadron striker attack vector demo in about five to 10 minutes. And in that five to 10 minutes, you can decide if the game is for you, or you can decide if the game is, or you can say, you know, this isn't for me, but I got a buddy who's an engineer who would be all over this. <laughs> Let me go get him. <laughs> I have personally seen that happen with a lot of demos in the conventions I used to go to. Mm hmm. Uh, 
So if you've played the pen and paper game Battletech, uh, the Squadron Strike rulebook is shorter than the Battletech rulebook by about 200 pages. Having read both, I can confirm that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my follow-up then would be is I had a good friend that used to play board games, used to play like chess with me all the time. And without being too much of a bummer, he died in the early days of COVID. So then my question mm-hmm. became, is something that we talked about just very shortly before we started on the air is, is there some way for me to reach out to the rest of your community and kind of do this remotely? Absolutely. So Squadron Strike and uh, Squadron Strike has a play aid called the Avid Assistant, which it basically takes a laminated card and puts it on your phone. And it connects to a database. So you, this is meant to be used on your phone in the game store with your buddy who's plotting his maneuvers on the phone and moving your miniatures on the map and you know rolling dice and going pew, 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 pew and having fun. Well, about six months before COVID happened, uh, I had said to my developer, you know, it'd be nice if I had a virtual map for this. Eh, it'd be nice, but I know you're busy, so it's not going to happen. And then... Two months before COVID happened, he said, hey, Ken, take a look at this. And I have a virtual map that uh, has the that has the smartphone application as the right-hand panel in it and a shared display and, and a shared map display on the other side. Uh, I'm going to go and post up a picture in the stream chat. One moment. Uh, let's see. Well, and of course, I'm going to want links to how people like me can get involved in all this, especially your Discord. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will get to the Discord in just a moment, but that's a picture of the map. Uh, when it posts, there we go. Yeah, that's a that there's a yeah there's there's the setup for uh, the there's actually a setup for uh, uh, for a Newton's Cradle game. Uh, and as to my Discord server. Uh, let me go grab that link real quick. Uh, read this first. There we are. And copy link. This is our Discord community. And we I routinely run about uh, two or three games. I routinely run about, uh, about a teaching game every week. Uh, and some weeks I've done two or three or four. And Jacob has actually run a teaching game for me at an online convention. Yep. Uh, and the virtual map is here. Oops. I can type. I can even type and talk at the same time, I think. No, I probably shouldn't do it. Uh, CBI.net. And that is our uh, website where the virtual map lives. Uh, Analog Space Combat by Internet, or ASCBI. We have regular regular teaching games for... Yeah. Uh, We have regular teaching games for, uh, uh, for... uh, for Attack Vector, run by uh, Matt, uh, run by uh, uh, Matt Francois. Uh, I have I run regular teaching games for Squadron Strike. Brian Trotter runs regular teaching games for Squadron Strike. We're trying to reinvigorate our uh, playgroups after the lull that happened in the uh, over the holidays. Uh, but one of our regular playgroups meets at one o'clock Eastern Time on Thursdays. That's the one that uh, Jacob actually plays in semi regularly. Uh, yep. 
It's called British Thursdays. We have uh, a playtest night that happens every Thursday night at about 7.30 Eastern time. At some point, once I'm no longer staring at three different products that need to be completed, I'm going to get back to running uh, Scenario Fridays on Friday on Friday evenings. Uh, and we used to have a Pacific Thursday, a Pacific Tuesdays group that just seems to have just vanished as people just stopped showing up. Uh, if it's not on a schedule and you're a grown-up, it doesn't really exist. So we try to actually have regular recurring uh, groups that will run and play things on a regular basis. Because that way you put it on a schedule and people will actually show up from time to time. Hmm. Well, thanks for doing that because too often complex games don't have things like Discord servers. And if it weren't for people like Spaz, I would have stopped playing X4 a long time ago if it wasn't for a combination of Spaz and a Discord server. Otherwise, I would have just thrown up my hands and say, I give up. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are plenty of people very eager to uh, tell you how the game works because (laughs) it is very fun and they want more people to play with. Yes. Myself included. And the other thing I will say is that coming, coming for a teaching game, just drop on in and ask for one. Give me two dates and uh, two, just uh, come in and give me two dates and two times that work on those dates. And I'll tell you which one works for me. And I will go round up another player because the teaching game works better if I have two or three students at a time. Uh, better use of my time and you guys have more fun. Uh, and uh, once we get you hooked, that's when we ask you to buy the, to buy the product. Uh, but you don't have to pay before you uh, before you learn to play the game. We consider teaching games to be like doing a, like doing a demo at a convention or doing a demo a demo in a game store. This looks very complicated for some idiot like me. I'll tell you what, Brian. <laughs> uh, so Brian, I'm got a so, question for you. I'm so dumb. What? Uh, yeah, I got a I got a question for you. Uh, I've seen you uh, live stream playing your games. Playing some of you, some of the games that you do, and it's not so much that it's more complex; it's that more of the game is exposed. Uh, more of the things that you have to make decisions about are exp- are exposed. And some people like making you know decisions and thinking them through, and some people want to click on things and see the and see the movie unwrap. Uh, <clears throat> depending on the setting, I think you would enjoy Squadron Strike. There are some settings in Squadron Strike that I'm not sure that you would enjoy. Uh, for example, one of the settings that uh, is that, that has been built twice and is going to go and uh, t- and is going to get redone another time, uh, a third time at the very least, is this one. I'm going to go. Pe- I'm going to go uh, put a piece of artwork up as soon as I find <laughs> that rocket p- cover web. There we go. Yes. So, there you go. if you saw that piece of cover art, <laughs> there's the answer I'm expecting. I do Count me in. That, that, is a, that is a nice piece of cover art. I will, I will grant you that. That is a, that is a very nice piece of cover art. You had me at Orion Drives. Granted, I've been out of the board game scene for several years now, but having played uh, a very obscure, well, now obscure game now uh game called nighthawks way back when it was published by tsr and it was part of mm-hmm. the uh star frontiers rpg system mm-hmm. it was the board game based on that yeah mm-hmm. that's what it reminds me of right off the bat mm-hmm. uh so uh in this timeline uh 
the Apollo program was actually a deception to uh, let uh, to let SAC General Michael T. Powers, an actual honest to God historical figure, go and do Project Orion. And uh, Kennedy was not assassinated. Uh, and uh, America had Orion Drive spaceships in polar orbits uh, starting in the mid-60s. What? Uh, and then the Soviets caught up, and things got very interesting. And uh, then Jimmy Carter got elected president and uh, signed a uh, treaty that basically gave the Soviets control of large chunks of the moon. Uh, and uh, Ronald Reagan got elected by saying... We've we, we got to elect the Republicans. The Democrat, that Democrat peanut farmer, gave the gave the Russians the goddamn moon. <laughs> Which so far so in character for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it does sound like Knowing something we know now. It does sound like something he would have said. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and in the, his State of the Union address in 1982. Uh, having uh, uh, in a State of the Union address in 1972, he basically said, uh, "America cannot afford to let Mars turn red." <laughs> and so yeah. uh, we went towards Mars. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, the lunar and, and, and the lunar treaty took a line. And the lunar treaty says, uh, "No truce outside the no truce outside circumlunar orbit." Hmm. Oh, sorry, no truce. <laughs> So now we have uh, Soviets versus Americans flying Orion Drive ships, lobbing nukes at one another, trying to uh, win uncontested control of Mars. I imagine it's a very rock attack sort of game. If you have 1970s tech throwing nukes at each other. Hey, 1980s. 1980s. It <laughs> doesn't help much. We don't still, exactly have nuke sniffers and electronic warfare in, in the 1980s. It still sounds nukes like... Nukes are still plenty deadly. It still sounds cassette futury, which uh, oh, which, definitely, uh, which I love. Oh, it absolutely obviously. is. It is love. absolutely cassette futury. Uh, one of the other products that I don't have cover art for yet uh, is uh, Ringgate. Uh, I was frustrated with the project and started mucking around with the ship design spreadsheet and ended up designing two factions and a third one, then a fourth one, and uh, came up with a background for them. Uh, and the Ringgate universe is set in the early is set in the uh, mid in the late 2100s. Uh, after uh, we discovered just how badly we screwed up the the uh, environment with global warming, uh, now the dominant powers are Australia, uh, Korea, uh, and Argentina, because everything towards the middle of the equator uh, ran into famines, and uh, then uh, and then there was the milk plague. Sounds fun. Milk plague? Yes. Uh, yes. Somebody genetically engineered a, a note that I wrote this in 2017. Uh, somebody genetically engineered a coronavirus that uh, used the receptors that keep uh, people from that, that keep that allow adults to drink milk without getting uh, sick uh, as its entry point. Ah. Yeah, that'll uh, that'll cause some trouble in. Uh, Places outside of Asia, mostly. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, it wasn't a lethal plague, but it was a mass debilitation event. And between that and the crop collapses and the like, it was a very bad 70 years. <laughs> hmm. And then we went to space. Mm -hmm. uh, and now you know why Korea is one of the uh, space-bearing powers. In addition hmm. to the fact that, you know, they... Uh, 
uh, managed to colonize most of what used. They managed to colonize most you know, greater you know, Greater Korea is what we now call Siberia. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Lots of interesting things have happened, I guess, have happened over the past hundred years. I do, yeah, I, do, so. I, do I do love these settings, I must admit. Mm-hmm. I do love these settings. So one of the things that happens in Ringgate is that uh, uh, an AI-driven probe was exploring uh, the moons of Uranus and stumbled across a thingamabob. <laughs> as probes uh, tend to do. As, as probes tend to do. It came across a thingamabob. Uh, and they figured out how to turn the thingamabob on. And the thingamabob uh, has a it is a gate that looks like a ring, and it has a diameter of eight. It has an interior diameter of eighteen point three four meters. And uh, the properties of physics inside on the other side of the gate in a space called ring space are very very different. Um. Uh, and one of the one of the things you can do in ring space uh, is that if you run a current from a power plant on our side of the gate through the gate to the other side, uh, the difference in time means that the calculations for uh, power com- for power conversion are very very different. Which led people to believe that the uh, ring gates were actually created by the people who are by people who are native to the ring sp- to ring space, who punched into our universe as a power extraction mechanism. Okay. Uh, is that the one that's that's like two movement modes at once? I remember there being one of those. Not a, uh, that is one that has two movement modes, but they but ships in ring space move by move by mode one. Ships in uh, our in Newtonian space move by mode two. All right. Uh, one of the other things that they have supposed is that uh, the dark energy that is causing the expansion of our universe is actually the mind tailings of that energy extraction from the Ringgate universe. Whoa, Fun. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, and uh, the other wow. thing is they they learned how to build more ring gates, but they found out that you only you can only install a ring gate from the ring space side. So you have to send it through the gate in parts, assemble it in ring space, and then uh, expend a couple of nuclear weapons in a very carefully contrived pattern to punch through. And uh, also back hope, into our that, space. hope that you punch through in the right space, I imagine. Uh, yes, that does help. However, it's a little bit easier to find out because uh, distances in ring space are uh, compressed by a factor of e raised to the power of e raised to the power of e. Understood. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our constant e shows up in a lot of places in ring space that it doesn't apply in our universe. <laughs> uh, e being the constant of... Um... Uh, natural logarithm. Uh, 2.817, rest of it's an irrational number that goes on from there for the bazillion. Oh, right, I remember. Yeah. yeah. Euler's uh, number. Yeah, Euler's number. Um, oh, Euler. So, yeah, uh, Euler's number shows up in uh, ring space in a lot of the physics in places that it shouldn't. <laughs> so, they found a bunch of other ring gates and went through them. Uh, and have found a few other cultures that are traveling through ring space and are being very circumspect about being caught in ring space. But they've not found the locals. If they have found the locals, nobody's reported back on it. Ah. They have, uh, you know, they, they punched a ring gate into a star system uh, and found a Jovian planet because you basically need to anchor a ring gate around a, uh, a gas giant-sized mass. Uh, for its orbital period, uh, they found a Jovian-sized planet that had tens of thousands 
of O'Neill cylinders around it. That's a lot. And every single one of those cylinders was filled with corpses. Ah, cosmic horror, my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of describe Ringgate as the interference pattern between Arthur C. Clarke and H.P. Lovecraft. Works for me. Like, I'm sold. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's all to me, too. (laughs) I've got a a question for you, and I think I probably know the answer, but you never know, because um, I've got a a friend uh, who works at a AAA developer, and he's a director, but he started out as an ichthyologist. And so my question is, what first, I mean, why did you say to yourself, hey, board games instead of, hey, video games, or why say board games at all? So part of it is that when I tried taking computer science classes in uh, college, I bounced right off of them. Part of it is also that I had started out doing board games and RPGs uh, while I was in high school. I actually paid for my first year of college by publishing the second cyberpunk RPG that was ever uh, published. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, Renegades. And uh, if you can find a copy of it with the blue cover, I will pay you $20 for a copy to send it to me. I will pay you $40 for a video of you putting it through a shredder, uh, pouring uh, lighter fluid on the shreds and lighting them on fire. <laughs> <laughs> but the one, okay, the one with the blue cover. Uh, <laughs> I published an RPG when I was 16, and I don't ever, and I don't want anybody, and I want people to know that it exists. So that they can either send it back to me or so they can destroy it so nobody else can see it. That's what's going on, Brian. Okay. <laughs> oh, Remove all the evidence. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, to give you an idea of just how bad it was, um, <clears throat> I, just, I, I figured that D100 tables weren't enough resolution. But if you took three 10-sided dice, you could get a D1000 look, uh, table look up. Oh, no. But, D1, but D1000s... Wait, wait what? Does that <laughs> let the, let them unfinish? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, so a D one hundred in it. You take two D tens. One's a tens die. One's a one hundred. One's one's the uh, one's the ones die. For a D one thousand, you take three D tens. One's the one hundreds die. One's the tens die. One's the one's the ones die. And you roll all three of them at once, and you get a number between nine ninety nine and zero and zero zero zero. Oh, okay, okay. That makes, more, uh, that, makes so, a lot, that makes a lot more sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to unpack the D one thousand thing for uh, for you because I realized that you hadn't, that you probably hadn't played Call of Cthulhu, or if you had, you lost enough <laughs> sanity points that you didn't remember playing it. <laughs> I played Warhammer, so uh, same principle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <God. laughs> uh, so it turned out that a flat D one thousand table, a, a flat D one thousand table was wasn't really what I was looking for. Uh, So what I, yeah. So what I had you do was I had you roll three D one thousands with three uh, and take the median and take the median value. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What median? There's three of them. I was 16. I was in my defense. I was 16. It was 1986. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, what did we learn from this? Um, also, in your defense, compare that to uh, Shadowrun, another game that was out or not not too far around that time, mm-hmm. and it included a mechanic in which you could die. Uh, you had a one sixth chance of dying 
from a fall from any height, which included things like tripping over a curb on the street. Oh, I mean, I, I remember this rule. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like a King's Quest game. That sounds like yeah. you had it. Yeah, you. So if you had a fall from any height, you would roll one d six, and you could die from that. From a fall from any any height, including tripping over a curb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, will we find this game in the desert next to those ET cartridges? <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Uh, but I was running this game. Uh, I was running this game off of a uh, off of a bulletin board service that I was running out of my bedroom with a second phone line that I paid for with the proceeds from this game uh, and kept on selling it until I graduated and kept on selling until I graduated from high school. And the money that I made from that helped pay for my first year of college. So that's kind of why I did board games before I did computer games. And then I tried taking computer programming in college and just bounced right off of it. (laughs) So you have technically been in the tabletop gaming industry from uh, since age 16. From yeah, from age sixteen. Yes. So, what did we learn? Uh, we learned once again that uh, you can get, you can you can become a very competent uh, game developer if you just screw up enough along the way. Yep, that's uh, kind of the, that, that was the course curriculum when I was doing it. I'm uh, sorry, three D one thousand take the medium. That's a complete first. <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm still recovering from that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it paid going to need you to roll the entire dice bag. <laughs> but it paid for your first year in college. Go you. Admittedly, that's because I also had a perfect ACT score and went to University of Alaska growing up in Alaska. And uh, with a perfect ACT score, everything over nine credit hours was free. And I was paying in-state tuition. And I just had to pay for books and all my, I had to pay for my books, my first nine credit hours. Okay, I withdraw my go you then. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, it's less impressive than it sounds, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I learned from doing these board games is that the trick to making board games work is that you have to remember that you're not making the game for you as a developer. You're making the game for the players. And that means that you have to put the game in front of players. And you have to put the game in a situation where you don't have an ego involved as you watch them play. Uh, the most useful playtesters I've ever had were the ones that almost got it. They were playing along, they were playing along, and then suddenly they got lost. And then I could sit back and take a look at my notes and go back and ask them questions and say, okay, you were fine up to this point. This is how I explained it. Let's see if I can find a different way to explain it that works for you so I can find out what I missed in, co- in covering this for you. Uh, I found a, uh, <laughs> and uh, yes, Emmett, I really did in fact use rules-based buff to pay for credit hours uh, because everything over nine credit hours was free at University of Alaska Fairbanks if you had a high enough ACT score, uh, which is part of the reason why I took 21 to 24 credit hours per semester for my first three semesters of college. Uh, so. Learning how people fail on things is an important piece of information for developing games. Uh, it is also something that is very important for doing computer games when you don't when you have early access and beta stuff. 
one of the things that I really find frustrating when I watch it, when I watch the dialogues on computer game development is just how boy. That's the other reason why I'm not in computer games, aside from just you know not having the programming or art skills for it. Uh, it's the interacting with the customers. Oh, good lord! <laughs> it's like the online forums for computer games are a filter for how much of an asshole can you really be. <laughs> oh man, we know that all too well around here. Yeah. Mm. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. And you know, compared to compared to putting up with that versus you know making board games and making less money, I'd rather make the board games. To be honest, I like I value my mental health more than that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the way I, yeah, I, yeah, the, the way I describe uh, a friend of mine who happens to be a woman who works in computer games, uh, let so me look at the, yes, uh, let me look at her, uh, at her, at her inbox for her work email. Oh no! Oh no! And you know what? And I didn't look. I didn't read any of the emails because you know that's confidentiality. But I could just read the headers. Oh. And she scrolled oh, through. Oh no! And you know, if I had to put up with that for my job, I would just, you know, I would go back. I would go find a sewer. I would go work in a sewage treatment plant to find a better grade of turd. <sighs> yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds. Uh, <laughs> that sounds about you know. That's a not necessarily a familiar experience, but a expected one. We can say that we know uh, quite a few devs who have been on the show and are no longer inactive development yeah because of that kind of thing yeah plus the fact that video games are built entirely on crunch uh no matter what they say there is not a single video game that there's not a single video game that didn't end in you know soul crushing crunch at the end um and the programmers that they get they get straight out of college the artists they get they get straight out of college so they're 21 and 22 and think that working 80 hours a week for a video game is the coolest job ever and then they burn out <laughs> badly yep. this is it's not uh, yeah that's an, an entirely correct assessment that is how things just work in the industry yeah and on the on the flip side, I can actually make a very modest living, and it becomes slightly less modest as I put out more products. But I can make a modest living. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can you know make a modest living by spending money printing products and selling them, and make my money back and a little bit of a profit, and makes and, and keep the lights on. And work on the next one. And each product that I do adds to this. And I don't have to answer to anybody but me. Well, okay, I have, to answer to, I, have to, I have to answer to the cat. Um, <laughs> Always got to answer to the cat. Well, yes. management, after all. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he, he is up for management. Um, <laughs> and that is part and parcel of how this works. Uh, I don't have to explain to some, I don't have to justify to somebody why I'm making attack vector. Attack Factor has its audience. I don't have to justify to somebody why I'm publishing Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey has its audience. But I can, as the publisher, talk to the dev team on Birds of Prey and say, so everything you can do that streamlines this just a little bit more without sacrificing the things that make Birds of Prey freaking awesome, uh, 
you are, I, I encourage you to do. Please do not worry about, you know, let me worry about the publishing details. Tell me what you need. I'll find the solutions for it. Because Birds of Prey is the product that sells the best through game stores, but it doesn't, but it seems to have the slowest growing, uh, it seems to have a, a flat player base. Uh, in board games, there are three audiences. Either, uh, the first audience is the audience that buys it, never takes it out of the shrink wrap, but puts it on their but puts it on their shelf for their collection, or you know, leaves it on their shelf and and sighs and goes someday. Mm-hmm. Then there's the audience that pulls the game, that buys the game, reads it, then remembers that they don't have the social skills to actually talk other people into playing games with them face to face. Puts it on the shelf and goes someday. <laughs> Ow! And then there's the audience that, and then there's the audience that goes, "Oh, this is cool. Let me go tell the, let me go tell Fred about this." <laughs> uh, and then they go take it to their buddy and they teach their buddy how to play it. And uh, if, and if I'm very lucky, they are one of the roughly one in fifty players who not only teaches it to their buddy, but goes and takes it to the game store with their buddy. They play it, and they play it there regularly, and eventually other people at the game store recognize that these people with the space map aren't, in fact, face-eating cannibals. (laughs) An inch closer. A little bit closer. A little bit closer. What's that? I've been seeing you here for the last month. Is that fun? (laughs) Kind of. And then, you know, you get people uh, and, and then you get new people showing up. But board games, what sells games is word of mouth. What sells games is sitting somebody down at a demo and, you know, walking them through how to play it. Uh, marketing copy helps a lot. A theme helps a lot. You know, that uh, picture, that, that cover of Rocket Punk, that is the most 80s cover that ever 80'd ever, anywhere. I mean, that is more 80s than the movie. That is more 80s than Streets of Fire. <laughs> Agreed. That is pretty eighties. Yeah. yeah, that is more eighties than Iron Eagle. <laughs> Oof. Wow! Whoa! 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 Slow down! There. Whoa! 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 That's a, whoa, whoa, that's whoa. a bold one he pulled out. Even I got that one. Whoa! 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 whoa. <laughs> it's not wrong though. Next thing you'll be saying it's more eighties than Megaforce, and that, sir, that's a line I don't think you can cross. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I no, but I did in fact make I, I did in fact make a miniature I did in fact make a miniatures game uh, that did that I ran two scenario conventions that were based off of Megaforce. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, not really. Well, on that note, we need to start wrapping up. We, it's been an hour yes. and a half. We need to go. Okay. Um, well, you know, some people, you know, it's late for some people. For some people, lunch is approaching. Um, so I can only carry, I can only, I wouldn't say carry the show. For, for, you uh, did, though. So long, you did carry the show. You did a great job. I, you did a I was great told job. I was supposed to carry this show. You and were, I did my best. And you, you were, and you did, and you did a great job. Uh, I would like to show. show one more piece of artwork. If I can, I'd like to show one more piece of artwork because sure. this is the new Birds of Prey product that I'm. Go ahead. Uh, this is the Birds of Prey product that when I'm off here, I'm going to go to the packing table and pack more of. Uh, let's see. There we go. Which is. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, the original plan for this was to actually have this in game stores uh, on May 20th with the movie uh, premiering on May 27th. That didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> that did not happen. Uh, I do need to look at the Birds of Prey because, again, the problem is it doesn't have the same virtual tabletop environment as um, as uh, as as uh, AVT and Squadron Strike, but it is it is exactly what I want. What I want, and it and what I want is well a competent jet competent jet board game. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, because I'm so insane. Up, in, up until up until DCS came out. Birds of Prey was more accurate than any flight simulator than, than any combat flight simulator you could put on your TV you know, that you could put on your uh, computer. Up until DCS, it was more accurate. I don't know which one I'd rather so, play. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, DCS, you actually have to have jet pilot, jet fighter. You have to actually have fighter pilot level reflexes, yeah, situation awareness. Uh, yeah. uh, in theory, <laughs> in, in practice, no one has those. I have played DCS, especially in multiplayer, and I have seen the most oblivious people on earth. I could just just flying an F-18 at like a thousand feet above ground level, just roll up on them in a MiG-21, wave wave to the wave to them from uh from across the canopy, nothing. No reaction. <laughs> Completely clueless. Can you can you wave to other people in that game? Can you uh, symbolically wave to other people? Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> though in the F-14 you can salute your catapult crew to have to to have them uh, send you off. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's neat. Uh, uh, but up until DC, up until DCS, Birds of Prey was more accurate than was more accurate than any computer flight simulator you could get without a security clearance. Uh, and uh, the thing about Birds, the, the thing about Birds of Prey is that what we do is we have the box set and we have products that cover specific conflicts. Uh, in this particular case, we cover two particular conflicts that are done in documentaries: one that was released in 1986, and one that was released in uh, this last year. And uh, yes. we have four, we have 14 air-to-air engagements from both of these conflicts. Oh wow! Yes, That's uh, funny. featuring the famous uh, uh, Soviet Middle Eastern design of the MiG-28 and the. Uh, uh, Hey, that was that 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 was totally a copy of the that was totally a copy of the F twenty of the F twenty. Somebody uh, yes. smuggled those blueprints to the uh, to, to, to <laughs> Eastern Europe. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> to, to Eastern Europe, and that made its way somehow into uh into the into the Persian Gulf. Yes. So uh, mm-hmm. anyway, so we do need to wrap up. I, I'm putting the right. I'm putting okay. the foot down. Uh, so, friends, uh, you can go to Ad Astra Games. It's A D A S T R A Games. Dot com to learn uh, more about uh, the four, right? Four systems uh, that you have. Mm-hmm. We didn't even talk about the other one. Yep. Um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, just looking at it. We didn't even talk about the uh, the the Traveler. We didn't even talk about that one. Um, uh, traveler is, is Squadron Strikes. Is a Squadron Strike setting. Oh, okay. Yep. I thought there was a different. It thing. is a separate, uh, like, uh, it's an it has a box whole- set. Yes, the whole story it, that has a whole different story attached to it, but we're not covering that. We're leaving. <laughs> yes, um, uh, and I will tell. I will tell the story about that in the trail of bodies. <laughs> oh god! The next time, <laughs> next time, next time. Um, so you can get, you can check out these products on adastragames.com. There are quite a few of them, and they look fascinating uh, for someone who is. Uh, in, intrigued interested by in in, interested by board games, and then uh, 
there, there was a link in the chat, but I'll also put it on the uh, website when the MP3 goes up uh, to the Discord server if you want to learn more or do a uh, training game. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are run regularly, it sounds like. So if this has um, if this has any interest to you, and it probably does, uh, definitely check it out because it sounds like if this clicks with you, it sounds like there's a lot of joy to be derived from this sort of thing, um, which is great. Uh, there's even a there's also some nonfiction uh, books that I put up there uh, on various things related to space science. One of them got me. One of them made me a Hugo finalist, a Hugo Award finalist. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, there is also the most expensive RPG you'll ever own in terms of cost per page. Minimus, <laughs> the four-page RPG. Uh, it does yes. everything. That, it does everything a GURPS does in four pages. Yes, uh, actually three. Actually three pages, and uh, provides a setting ready to run on the fourth was, page. Was that the one I got as a gift for overpaying? Yes, it is. Yes, it was. Did you ever, did you ever read it? I did. Well, it's four pages. It didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for that on your product page and I don't think I'm seeing it. Uh, it uh, if look, uh, I might be look. missing I it. I know though. it's on there. I might be missing it though. It's probably here. Um, oh, there it is. I see it now. I see it. $3. Yeah. Yep. So it's basically 80 cents per page. <laughs> yep. It's 75 cents a page. And when I, and I print this out on an oh, eight and a right. half by 11. Yeah, and I print this out by an eight and a half, on an eight and a half by on eleven by seventeen, folded up into a four-page folder, and I will give somebody the basic pitch and say, you know, on page one we give you character creation, an unbreakable character creation system. On page two we give you a task sequencing system that once you've used it once, you will want to use it in every role-playing game you ever GM. On page three we give you all the rules for GMing the game. On page four, we give you advanced GMing techniques pulled from Hollywood screenwriters' Bibles and a complete setting ready to run. Now, normally I charge a dollar per page, but as a special convention price, if you buy page one and page two and page three, I'll throw in page four absolutely free. (laughs) And that's a good salesman, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. You've done this a lot. <laughs> I can tell, tell, tell you've done this a lot. Uh, so, yeah, at Ad Astra Games, you can find information for all this stuff. Uh, and the links for the Discord and all that will be on uh, the website once the MP3 goes up tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, <laughs> the description is longer than the actual. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, Ken, I want to thank you for coming back on again, and we will definitely have you on again when, uh, what's the name of the thing that you said was going to be ready? Um, Newton's, Newton's Cradle. Newton's, Newton's Cradle, whenever that's, you know, you should, yep. you, since you don't have the year on the website, you could say, expect to ship June 27th of 2024. You don't have the year on there, so it could be next June. It could be two, it could be two Junes from now. It's fine. It's totally fine. You don't have the year I on there. To, you don't have the year on I there. I want it out because I've already... I want it out because I've already paid for all of the part for all of the out of uh, shop components. So I want to make my money back. <laughs> right. Uh, well, give give us a heads up when that's about to ship and we'll definitely have you back. And maybe, maybe we'll have time for, I, I didn't have time for a training game, but maybe at some point in the future, I'll have time for a training game where my brain, but I, Okay, if I ever attend a trading game, I'm just telling you, I'm giving myself permission to leave if my brain starts to melt. Like, if it's like, this is too much, I'm out. Um, Because I can kind of tell, 
I know myself. I can kind of tell this might be too much for me. But if it's not too much for you, my friends, definitely check it out because there's a lot to love here. You can tell a lot of love and blood, sweat, and tears have been put into this. So you should definitely check it out if you have any interest in space combat and board games. Um, and if you've ever gotten tired, if you've ever gotten tired of being blown up because your reflexes aren't fast enough, come analog space combat by internet is waiting for you. (laughs) Oh, that's right. That's another link I have to put in the thing. Was it? Also right. We're supposed to end the podcast. Shit. Right. I'll I'll get that from you later. So friends next week is kind of up in the air. Uh, I've offered it to a guest, but I haven't heard back. So we might just do a topic show. I don't know yet. Um, so and that'll so that'll do it for uh, this episode. I want to thank, as always, our patrons, and as always, everyone who's gotten vaccinated already. Uh, thank you to the thank mm-hmm. you to you. If you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, please, for the love of whatever deity you believe in or deities, uh, please get vaccinated. <laughs> oh my God, I shouldn't have to ask this. I shouldn't have to I'd say wear this. Wear a mask, please. Oh God, please, yes, wear a mask. Masks have been proven multiple times to slow or to slow the spread of COVID. Please, there's going to be a gaming convention where they've where they've just dropped the requirement for masks and vaccinate vaccines. It's like mm-hmm. what are you what are you doing? What what are you doing? You mean Gen Con? Yes. I forgot yeah. the name of it. Yeah, they've dropped the requirements for masks and vaccines. So you might as well just call it Super Spreader Event 2023. So please my friends, get vaccinated. Wear your damn masks when you leave the house. We we gotta. It's so stressful living under a goddamn pandemic. So so please do what you can to help us all in this. Please, I shouldn't have to say this. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Have a great one, everyone. Bye bye. Oh my god. <laughs>